So this congregation, for those who don't know, we are a, a merger of two congregations, the United Church of Christ, which if you're from the Northeast, it's usually called the Congregational Church, and the Disciples of Christ, which most of us don't even know that that's our name. You know, it's, it's usually like First Christian of so-and-so. or but, So we're two different denominations with very similar roots and very similar understandings. I'm disciples, and so my sermon is a little bit tilted that way. But, you know. I don't know how many of you might remember your baptism. Some of you will have been baptized as infants, and some of you engaged in believer's baptism. I was one of those. Now, my mother thought I was too young to be baptized when I asked to be baptized. She, when I said I wanted to be baptized, she sat me down in the kitchen and asked a bunch of questions. I don't even remember what the questions were, but I think she was satisfied because she said, well, I'll think about it. But what she did was she called our interim pastor, Reverend Ben Hearn, Brother Hearn, we called him. To me, he seemed like an ancient man. I don't really know how old he was, but you know, when you're little, every, I mean, I'm ancient now. He could have been younger than I am, I don't know. <laughs> but he always wore a three-piece suit and circular wire-rimmed glasses. He had this really impish grin and he was kind, and he was gentle, and he was scholarly, which was something kind of different from my little country town, which it was at the time, farming and ranching town. He somehow captured the imagination of several other third and fourth graders because we would sit in rapt attention to anything that he would say. I recall the Easter Sunday service sitting on the front row and then at the appointed time going to a small room that was behind the organ and changing clothes into a white baptismal robe. And when it was my turn to be baptized, as there were several baptisms that day, I walked down into the font where Brother Hearn stood in his waders. I handed him the dry hanky that Mrs. Pewitt, had, who always had matching lipstick and nail polish, <laughs> had given me. And he asked me to reaffirm my faith in Christ, and he put the handkerchief over my nose and mouth and then lowered me into the water, saying that he baptized me in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I looked out when I came up and I saw my family and all the good folks at First Christian Lancaster in their Easter finery. When I came up wet, he welcomed me into the body of Christ. I went back to the little room, changed clothes, and sat on that front row with all the other soggy new Christians on the first row of the church awaiting my first opportunity to have communion. Because at that church, when I was growing up, you didn't get communion before you were baptized. I kept checking to see if I could see any hints that I was this new person. As far as I could tell, nothing had changed. 
There were no new powers. I, I didn't see differently. I didn't hear God talk in my thoughts. I couldn't conduct any miracles. But after church, the soggy Christians stood at the back of the church with the pastor, and as the congregation filed out, the good people of First Christian Lancaster shook our hands and welcomed us into the fold. They all had known us since birth. It was like growing up in a sitcom. But we were welcomed as new Christians, as new brothers and sisters in Christ. Baptism and communion are the two rituals considered essential to worship in the Christian church, Disciples of Christ, and also in UCC. Baptism was practiced in the early church as it was one of the first ritualistic acts of Jesus when he approached John the baptizer and he requested his baptism. And John may have been a member of the Essenes, a smaller and more sectarian group of Judaism. The Essenes practiced peaceful, righteous living and used baptism as a ritual of cleansing and confessing of sins. They may have engaged in baptism as a daily practice after prayer, after confession. And in fact, the mikvah, a ritualistic purification, is still used and practiced in Orthodox and conservative Judaism. It's not quite the same as baptism, but it is a ritual purification with water. Now, the earliest leaders of our movement, Alexander and Thomas Campbell and Barton Stone, now we do have an early leader, leader who I think makes me love the fact that I'm a part of this denomination. His name was Raccoon John Smith. That's all. <laughs> but anyway, these three were the, 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 the main guys. And as they studied and wrote, they all concluded that, now they had all been baptized as, as infants, but they concluded that the baptism of immersed believers was the baptism that was mandated by scripture. But even from the beginning, they never denied the baptismal veracity of all those coming to the movement who had never been baptized as infants. Because infant baptism calls attention to human need and human helplessness and reality and to the reality of God's gracious initiative and action on all of our behalf. While baptism of confessing believers emphasizes the personal response to grace and the forgiveness of sin. You know, baptism taken seriously is serious business. It's not an initiation into a club. This is a step inside a world that is countercultural. And that's hard to believe in our society where Christianity has become so enmeshed in various ways of life, and I think polluted in some of those ways. This is a world where outcasts are welcome, where the idols of polite society are scorned, where work to transform the world is engaged, 
where confessions are made, repentance enacted, and forgiveness can be practiced. Alexander Campbell wrote that baptism is the Jordan flood that separates every Christian from the values of the nation or culture in which they happen to live. The church is a peculiar people, he wrote. He respond to God's grace by living as disciples of Christ, not disciples of Caesar. So from the beginning of my denomination, we understood that baptism should have profound social implications to the transformation of society. Through baptism, we are invited into newness of life with all of the church of all the times. We are baptized not for sins inherited from the fall of humanity. We accept our baptism for the remission of our own sins, the sins we have committed. In baptism, we accept God's pardon and God's acceptance, but it doesn't end there. As Alexander Campbell wrote in the Christian system, because forgiven, Christians should forgive. Because justified, they should live righteously. Because sanctified, they should live holy and unblameably. Because reconciled to God, they should cultivate peace with all and act benevolently towards all. Because adopted, they should walk in the dignity and purity of God. Because saved, they should abound in thanksgivings and praises and rejoicing, living soberly, righteously, and godly, looking forward with blessed hope. In other words, when we make the public confession of our faith and ask for forgiveness, when we undergo the ritual of baptism, and if it has happened as an infant, when later you make your confession and you accept your, con your baptism, when you make the ritual of baptism, which is an, a public statement that we accept God's grace and promise for new life, we are expected to live, to live and to behave like citizens of a new and hopeful society. Now, some have the rite of baptism confused with a magical um, quick get to heaven after death card. I mean, there was even times in the Middle Ages when people would forego baptism until right before death because they thought no sins between now and now. <laughs> but baptism is a covenantal act with missional implications. It's a statement of belief in new life right now, right here for everyone. In Galatians, we learn that there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ. Worldly symbols of status become relativized when one is baptized into Christ. The paradox of Christian faith is that we can affirm the things that make us distinctive because we are all created in the image of God, but also give thanks that in Christ, any devaluation of those who are different from ourselves have been overcome. 
Jew and Greek, slave and free, those were the markers of status in, of Paul's society. But how do we distinguish and prioritize ourselves in our society? Legal, illegal, gay, straight, trans, Republican, Democrat, black, brown, white, rich, poor, employed, unemployed, housed, unhoused. What happens if we greet each other as Christian? What happens to rancor, to distrust, to fear? In Corinthians, we learned that for in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. And one member cannot say to another, I have no need of you, or I don't belong to you. If one member suffer, suffers, we all suffer with it. As baptized members of this body, we are dependent on one another. When one is sick, we all are sick. As baptized members of this body, we must consistently take assessment of our actions and our words and honestly confess when we missed our marks, when we have harmed others intentionally or unintentionally. You so some of us are stronger than others. Some of us are weaker. Some of us are wealthy and some of us are not. Some are old, some are not. We all have different talents and experiences and life paths that have brought us all to be members of this body. Yet because of baptism, we are all called to the same care of one another. This is one of the reasons that we support the care of congregations in other cities, in other states, in other countries. This is why we march in solidarity when our brothers and sisters face discrimination, poor education, lack of access to health care. This is why we search for ways to ensure that people are insured and not left to the ravages of disease while Christians of means live lives in ease. This is why many of us have taken the stance to be open and affirming and why, as a denomination, we've declared ourselves striving to be a pro-reconciling, anti-racist denomination. You know, when we gather for worship, we move through different actions. We call ourselves to worship. We turn away from the world outside. We ask for God's spirit to become upon us. We offer thanksgiving, we make petitions, we confess our sins, we pray together. We focus on the word and we try to see scripture in a different light. We come to the table recognizing that none of us are worthy, but all of us are welcome. We do this every week and then we go back into the world to live among those who choose fear over faith being right over doing right, those who exclude and those who judge. And we do this practice every week to remind ourselves, to prepare ourselves, to train ourselves, to be able to live in that world, but be not of that world, because we have been baptized into a new reality. And this is difficult work. This is mature work. 
I now know why my mother feared I was too young to step into those roiling holy waters. It is especially difficult of late with the polarized political litigious climate in which we live. You know, if someone comes to us asking for help, we are to help as we can. If someone needs water, we are to leave it for them without asking if they are legal or not, or if the law tells us that we cannot leave water because we follow a holier law. To say that police brutality should stop is not to speak against police. It's to speak against brutality. As Christians, we have no other choice but to do these things. And as Christians, we are called upon to live in kindness and truth with one another. We are to hold one another accountable for our actions in the world. We are to seek the guidance and support of others who live in this body with us. Being a Christian is a joyful experience, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's always easy or simple. As baptized people, as those peculiar people of Christ, we might be mocked, ridiculed, questioned. We might even be considered radical, but we're not called to a club. We're called to a new way of life a life where idols are broken, where the captive is set free, where love abounds, where joy is evident and hope sustains us. As that soggy new Christian, I remember asking Brother Hearn after church when this new life was going to start. He laughed in his sweet way, and it wasn't as if he were laughing at you. It was kind of like he was laughing with you. He asked me to sit down beside him, and he looked at me, and he said, It already has, Janet, and it starts every day that you wake up because you now have to make sure that it gets started. Now and then over your life, you'll see glimmers of that new world. And one day, if enough of us do this all together, we will all see it at once, all together. But it doesn't matter, you're a Christian now, and you have to do it every day, even if no one else does. So come, Christians, join me. Live boldly into your baptisms. Shatter your idols. Accept God's grace and look forward with blessed hope. Amen.